a short quiz. There are some things in life that we do, and we can see it either as a duty or as a delight. Take the first one, Christmas shopping. Now, be honest, hands up if for you, going Christmas shopping on Princess Street is a duty. Okay, be honest, hands up. Now, hands up if it's a delight. It's quite evenly matched, actually. Okay, well, now, here's the second one. Washing the car. Who thinks washing the car is a chore? Wow. And who, who actually enjoys washing the car? Come to my house any day. You're more than welcome. Now, here's the third one. And this one, you don't have to raise your hands, okay? Here's the question. What about prayer? Is prayer for you a duty or a delight? J.I. Packer, the eminent theologian, recently wrote a new book. And it has a great title. It's called Praying, Finding Our Way Through Duty to Delight. And you can buy it downstairs. And if you open the front page, Jim Packer presents a very thought-provoking question. And it's this. He invites you to pause and to ask yourself a rather personal question. And the question is this. Think back to last week. Okay? And ask yourself, how was your prayer life? In other words, if you were to write down on a piece of paper on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your prayer life? Now, before we go on a massive guilt trip before Christmas, here's how J.I. Packer continues, this eminent theologian. Here's what he says. Our guess is that most of our readers are like us. We want to get things right, but we are more than a little embarrassed to admit how far-reaching are the problems we have in praying. And so this morning, we're going to ask very simply, what does it mean to pray? And in particular, what does it mean to delight in prayer? 2,000 years ago, the Apostle James gives us an answer. In his very practical letter, James, the half-brother of Jesus, turns to this vital subject of prayer. And he was very well qualified to do so, according to his nickname. Interestingly, his nickname was Camel Knees. Camel Knees. Because he spent so much time on his knees praying. And if you look very carefully, you notice that his letter starts with prayer, and it also ends with prayer. In chapter 1 and verse 5, if you turn back, it says this, chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the stone and tossed by the wind. And then if you flick over to chapter 4, chapter 4 and verse 2b, James writes this. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And now we come to chapter 5, and it's the climax 
And how does James finish? He wants us to have camel knees, at least metaphorically. And so this morning we're going to unpack this, and we're going to ask three practical questions about prayer. And the first one is this, when should I pray? When should I pray? So how does James begin here? Verse 13. Let's look at verse 13. Is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now, I don't know if you saw on television a program called I'm a Celebrity. Get me out of here. If you haven't, you didn't miss much. There's a program set out in a jungle and famous celebrities do some awful challenges. And one of them was a chap called Dean. Now, there's one particular word which perfectly summed up to Dean. And it's the word petrified. But, you know, Dean always did something when he was afraid. He would pray. When all else fails, I can always ask for God's help. And that's what some people think. Though James is saying here, friends, prayer is so much more than that. Prayer is communicating with our heavenly creator God. And that's what prayer is. And if you look at verse 13, we are reminded that you can talk to God no matter how you feel. Firstly, you can pray when you're in trouble. Now let me explain what James is saying here. In verse 13, the words in trouble mean to experience difficulty. And it's a broad term and it covers all kinds of trials. And in verse 14, the next verse, we are given the example of sickness. Now, as we all know, the cold weather is well and truly upon us. And it's a time of year when one may catch a cold. And apparently men make a bigger fuss than women. So I've been told, but not in Charlotte Chapel. Well, James is writing here about those who have become ill. And if you look, he clearly has in mind not a trivial thing like catching a cold. No, it's one of serious illness. And maybe you can relate to that. And it could be yourself. Or maybe it's someone you care about deeply. And this morning, you know they are sick. And maybe you have some big questions, such as, why has God allowed this to happen? And does God really care about me and my family? Now, here's what we can think when we go through a hard time. We may think, I am going through this because God is angry with me. And we can think that. But you know, the reverse could also be true, could it not? You may be angry with God. And the result is, we stop praying. Now, picture the scene. You're a Christian. You love God. And God calls you to be a missionary. And you go. You leave your home for another country. And when you get there, what happens? Great success. What news do you have for CBC Online? Well, you're beaten up and you're thrown into prison. Now, let me ask you, how would you feel if that was you? Would you feel let down? Well, that is a true story. Paul and Silas had it rough. But look at their fantastic God-honoring response. Let me read from Acts chapter 16. It's brilliant. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. So why could they be like this? 
Well, it's because they knew a person called Jesus. And they knew he had died on the cross for them. And so they knew that despite all the apparent mess, God loved them. And he is still on his throne. And that's why you can pray when you're in trouble. But secondly, you can also pray when you are happy. And I like the story of the Scottish minister, Alexander White. Now, Alexander White was known for his uplifting prayers in the pulpit. And he always found something for which to be grateful. And it's a great way to be. And one Sunday morning, the weather was so gloomy outside that one church member thought to himself, surely he won't think of anything for which to thank the Lord on a wretched day like this. However, much to his surprise, Alexander White got up and he began to pray. We thank thee, O Lord, that it's not always like this. I thought that was wonderful. And in verse 13, the Apostle James is reminding us of that. Yes, we can experience trials, but there's so much to be happy about. In other words, there's so much to thank God for. You know, if we were to go around everyone this morning, we're not, so don't worry, and if we were all to give one reason why we can be thankful, why we can be happy, I wonder what you'd say. For example, we might start at this side. Okay, this side. And someone might say, well, I'm thankful because I like to go hill walking and God's creation is absolutely amazing. This is the sporty group. And we might go to the middle and someone could shout, well, I'm thankful for God's character. He is absolutely trustworthy. And finally, this side. And someone might say, well, I'm thankful for God's provision. The air that we breathe and the food that we eat, it all comes from God. But folks, for every Christian here, we should be able to say, most of all, I am thankful for Jesus. You know, I was so pleased this week when I heard the song that was going to be sung for us this morning. And let me stop. And let me remind you of the chorus. That's tremendous words. I'm almost, it's almost over. We are going home. Our Lord is coming to claim his own. Be faithful, pilgrim. Be brave and strong. It's almost over. We are going home. And what is our response? Listen to this. Until then, my heart will go on singing. Until then, with joy I'll carry on. Until the day my eyes behold that city. Until the day God calls me home. I wonder, as I ask myself, when was the last time you stopped and you thanked Jesus for dying for you and for rising again and for coming back to take you home? Very simple. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. So when should you pray? When you're in trouble and when you're happy. And now secondly, how do I pray? How do I pray? And what James goes on to write here are some of the most controversial words in the whole of his letter. And I drew this short strong. So let's try and unpack this. Verse 14. If you look down with me, let's see what it says. Is any one of you sick? 
He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, there are three guidelines here to note about how to pray. And firstly, we are to pray in love. Pray in love. And this is implicit from what James is saying here. We are to pray in love for each other for physical healing. Now, over these past few weeks, I've been lecturing in St. Andrews, having a great time. And we did a case study of Charlotte Chapel, believe it or not. And many of the students were amazed at just how big and active Charlotte Chapel was. Did Dr. Gibb really work there? But, you know, some of them are thinking this. Would I not feel lost in a big church? And would I still feel part of a church family? There's some great questions. Well, vital for this church are our fellowship groups. And every fortnight, 39 groups meet all over the city. And we study God's Word together, and we pray together, and we might even play board games occasionally. But if you look at verse 14, we find in this very practical verse what it means to be a church family, a family which genuinely cares for each other. Okay, so how can we show that? Well, let's follow what James is saying here. If you look at verse 14, verse 14, importantly, and very importantly, it is the person who is sick who takes the initiative in requesting prayer. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church. And that happens today in Charlotte Chapel. People request prayer, and the elders, because of their spiritual maturity, James is writing, and the pastoral team will pray for them. And so notice very carefully what this passage assumes. It assumes that every Christian will be in a church fellowship. So they know who their under-shepherds are, and so they can call upon them when they are in need. But let's also look at verse 16. It's an important verse in verse 16. And the point in verse 16 is, because we are a family, the church as a whole is to pray for each other. Okay, and now secondly, we are to pray in faith. And here's where I'm bound to offend someone if I've not done so already. Well, let's look at what these verses actually say. Verse 14 again, let's look at this. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, mark those words, will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Okay, so let's explore this. And firstly, what does the oil mean? Well, in the ancient world, oil was used as a skin, condi skin conditioner and also as a medicine. And an example is the Good Samaritan. But in verse 14, you'll notice, the verb used by James is to anoint with oil. And most scholars think this. It means that as the elders anoint the sick person, they are symbolising that that person is being set apart for God's special care. In other words, James is saying here, it is a physical action with a symbolic significance. And that's what it means. And then we come to the prayer itself. In verse 15, 
And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Now, when I was 13, uh, we discovered, sadly, that my mother had cancer. And I recall what happened. The elders came to our house and they prayed. But she did not get well. So let me ask you this. Did that mean the elders did not have faith? Or did my mother not have faith? But we need to grasp this. Nowhere in God's word are we told that if you don't recover from a sickness, it's because you don't have enough faith. It doesn't say that. Take the apostle Paul. Paul, do you believe, I mean really believe, that God can heal you? Yes, I do. Paul, did God remove your thorn in the flesh? No, he didn't. Listen to what he writes to the church in Corinth. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. I love this verse. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, God had a purpose in allowing Paul's illness to remain. And that takes faith to accept that. So then what is the prayer of faith? The prayer of faith is prayer believing that the sovereign God can provide healing if healing is his will. We pray fully convinced that God can heal if he chooses. And he can do this through the NHS, through medicine, and he can do it through miraculous healing because he is God. And yet, folks, we also pray recognizing that God's will is supreme and it may not be his perfect will to heal us. So, we are to pray in faith. We're also to pray in fellowship. And now we come to verse 16. Another tricky verse. Let's look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Okay, what does this mean? Well, it raises two important questions. Number one, can my sin actually make me ill? And question number two, who is it that I should confess to? So let's take them one at a time. And firstly, the cause of sickness. The cause of sickness. And the first thing to say is that not all sickness is a direct result of sin. Or that all sin causes sickness. I love the story in John chapter 9. I'm sure you'll know it as well. The Lord Jesus and his disciples are walking along. And they see a man who is born blind. And his disciples, who are never shy, turn and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And how did God incarnate respond to that? Well, he said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, this could be personal. Maybe you're facing a sickness right now. Well, let me say this. No matter how godly we are, and how much we trust in God, while we live in this fallen, broken, mixed up world, we are subject to the fallenness of it. And yet this is not the end, because it's almost over, and we're going home. 
home to the presence of Jesus. And now secondly, we come to the confession of sin. And throughout his letter, James is deeply concerned about this matter of fellowship. And it's so important. And in verse 16, if I can paraphrase, he says this. Look, if you've wronged someone, either by what you've said or by what you've done, then go and put it right with them. And it takes humility and it takes guts. Now, obviously, this principle requires wisdom. For example, imagine that you've got a friend called John Smith. And this past week, you have thought in your head some rather unkind things about John Smith. Now, after the service, who do you spot in the corner of your eye? John Smith. And he's going into the lounge. And so you get your coffee. And you go up to John. And you say, John, I've been thinking some really nasty things about you. And I thought I should tell you that. Because that's what Richard said. Now, now let me ask you, do you think it would make the situation any better? No, it wouldn't. And make me very unpopular. So here's a good rule in applying this principle. Okay? Confess wrong attitudes to God and leave John Smith alone if confession will only make it worse. And now our final question. The time is going. Why should I pray? Why should I pray? Now here we come to verses 16 and 17 and we're given two front page reasons, news flash reasons why to pray. And the first is this, because God invites us to pray. Amazing. And for someone like Hudson Taylor, that is what gripped his soul. Hudson Taylor, as you know, was a missionary. And he was someone who prayed. And he never lost the sheer privilege of it all. The one who has the world in his hands wants to hear my prayers. It's amazing. Listen to what Hudson's son, Howard Taylor, said of his father. It's very telling. He says, For 40 years, the sun never rose in China that God didn't find him on his knees. Camel knees. The sheer privilege of it all. And if you look at verse 16, thankfully, you and I don't need to be a super saint like Hudson Taylor to pray. Because the phrase righteous man here is simply the believer who is righteous by virtue of receiving forgiveness through Jesus. And God invites us to pray. What a privilege. As Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And now finally, we pray because God works through prayer. Let me share with you a story I found in a book by Charles Swindle. Okay, so blame Charles Swindle. And it goes like this. A man was being pursued by a roaring, hungry lion. And feeling the lion's hot breath on his neck. And knowing his time was short, he prayed as he ran. And he cried out in desperation, Oh Lord, Please make this lion a Christian. It's not a true story, as you probably guessed. Let me just... Uh, Within seconds, the scared man became aware that the lion had stopped the chase. And when he looked behind, he found the lion kneeling, lips moving in obvious prayer. And greatly relieved, 
at what just happened. He approached the king of the jungle. And when he was near enough, he heard the lion praying. And bless, O Lord, this food, for which I am exceeding. Charles Swindle. Okay, not Richard Gibb. But the reality is, in some mysterious and magnificent way that we don't fully understand, God works through prayer. Take a look at verse 17. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And you recall the story. We have the person, Elijah, the prophet of God, when evil king Ahab ruled the land of Israel. And we have the prayer. We see that Elijah prayed for a drought to come to Israel. And why? Because of their sin. And we have the result. A drought did come for three and a half years. And then Elijah prayed again. And it rained. In other words, God works mightily through prayer. Now, we're almost finished. And as we close, let's focus on these last two verses. Okay, look at these last two verses, 19 and 20. And in many ways, these verses summarize all of what James has been saying throughout his very practical letter. Faith without deeds is dead. Let's just look at them once more. Verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way, way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, James has a particular person in mind here. Let me explain. The person in mind here is most likely someone who at least outwardly identified with the Christian community, the church. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you enjoy coming to church and you enjoy singing the hymns, but you've never yet come to Jesus. Maybe that's you. I wonder this morning if you will take that step. It's so important. But James is also saying here that if you are a Christian, listen, yes, we may face troubles, we may have troubles, but friends, let's put our faith into action by caring for people who are lost. And so as we close, let's think how we can apply this. Tonight, we launch our new Christmas series, and you'd never have guessed, called Is His Story History? A very clever title. I'm sure you'll agree. It's great. So here's an idea. Why not think who you can bring, you personally, to these special guest services? Okay? And it could be anyone. It may be someone in church, even this morning. It could be your neighbor, a colleague at work, a fellow student, someone at the gym, preferably after they've showered, your doctor or dentist, a member of your family, or even your boss. Imagine that. And ask them to come with you and pray expectantly that God will work powerfully in their lives. Because, as James would say, that really is a faith that works. Let's pray.